and welcome to Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott, and I'm here to read you a couple of bedtime stories. Let's just get right down to it, shall we? First up this week, we have a very fun tale of technology gone awry from Ben Schleter. You remember Ben from his very gory and very controversial story, Opinions, about the bumper sticker killer. Well, he's back with Alexa. In the nightmare, Peyton is lying in bed. The only light comes from the moon through her bedroom window. She is stuck somewhere between fully awake and being completely asleep. She is aware of her surroundings, but can't move. She is paralyzed from the neck down. She turns her head towards the door, when it slowly creaks open. A strange man emerges from the hallway into our moonlit room. He is a huge giant of a man. He has dirty, greasy hair that falls upon his shoulders, and his sunken eyes are pitch black. As he creeps closer, he smiles through his thick, matted beard, revealing rotten, crooked teeth. He is wearing a white apron, which is covered with smears of blood. Most disturbing, though, is the large, blood-soaked meat cleaver in his hand. As he shuffles closer and closer, Peyton tries with all her physical and mental might to wake up and run, but to no avail. Her screams of anguish fall upon deaf ears. When the monstrosity reaches her bedside, he bends down within inches of her face, and with his long, slimy, rotten tongue, he licks her from chin to forehead. Peyton can feel his hot breath and the smell of the decay. As she cries and pleads for her life, he stands back up slowly and raises the meat cleaver above his head. Then he brings it down with all his might. Here's I'm Watching You by Daryl Hall and John Oates on Amazon Music. Peyton shot up in bed. What the hell? She said. She rubbed her eyes and tried to clear the brain fog that confused her thoughts. Alexa, stop the music she demanded as she got out of bed. She went over to the Alexa station on her bedroom dresser and read the song title that had just played. She was already freaked out by the nightmare, and this certainly didn't help to calm her down. She tried her best to shrug it off and return to bed. She told herself she would tell Tom what happened the following day. It was Tom's idea to get the Alexa for their new home. He traveled often and thought that it would give Peyton something to do and quick access to books and music. 
Also, she would be able to call him any time from any room in the house if she needed to. Peyton didn't think of Alexa as a companion of any kind. But she did like that she could listen to her playlists, call whoever she wanted, and try out new recipes. It's so fucking flat, Peyton thought as she drove toward the airport to pick up Tom. Peyton was happy to get out of the house, the nightmare and the strange Alexa interruption of the previous night still weighing on her mind. On the way back to the airport, Peyton told Tom about the midnight disruption. Tom laughed and passed it off as a glitch. He told Peyton he would check out the settings and make sure all was on the up and up. Peyton was having a difficult time adjusting to their new house and new neighborhood. Back home in California, she knew everyone and had friends and family within a few miles. Here, it was just her and Tom. She was not happy about moving to Nebraska, but Tom couldn't pass up this job opportunity. Cauldron wasn't her ideal hometown, but she decided she would give it her best. She loved Tom and wanted him to be happy. Tom had been traveling all week, so they spent the weekend drinking wine, unpacking, and making love. There were no more Alexa disruptions, but Peyton couldn't quite shake an uneasy feeling. Before leaving for work on Monday morning, at Peyton's request, Tom checked the Alexa settings and made sure nothing was out of order. Feeling confident that all was normal, Tom grabbed his stuff and headed out the door. Tom liked to leave the house early to go to the gym before work. This gave Peyton an opportunity to sleep in a bit before beginning her day. Here's I See You by Luke Bryan on Amazon Music. Peyton's eyes shot open, and she sat up in bed. You've got to be kidding me, she said as she stretched her arms to the ceiling. She commanded Alexa to stop, then grabbed her phone from the nightstand and called Tom. What's up, babe? Asked Tom. You told me you would fix the fucking Alexa. Peyton complained. I checked it this morning, babe. All the settings are normal. Explained Tom. Well, it just went off again and scared the shit out of me. She said. It played that I See You song by Luke Bryan. Country music. (laughs) That is scary. Real funny, asshole. (sighs) I'm sorry, babe. I'll take another look when I get home tonight. Alexa didn't speak out of turn again that morning, but Peyton couldn't help but feeling like she was being watched. When she sat on the couch to read, she thought she felt a presence behind her, looking over her shoulder. When she was vacuuming the living room, she looked at the turned-off TV screen and thought she glimpsed a shadow in the room. But when she turned to look, No one was there. Peyton had officially creeped herself out and decided some exercise would help. She was an avid runner and loved nothing more than the high she achieved from a good run. Peyton was an all-star cross-country runner in high school and college, and she had completed three marathons. Most runners experience bad days when it's hard to get going. Peyton definitely had some of those days. But today felt different. Her muscles felt fine. 
but her breathing was labored and she could feel a slight pressure around her throat. Also, her head just wasn't in the game. As she jogged down the familiar hiking trail, she kept getting glances of a dark figure just at the edge of her periphery. When she turned, nothing was there. After only a mile, Peyton stopped and walked back home. When she got home from her run, she took a long hot shower, started to cook dinner, and opened a bottle of wine. Tom came home shortly after, and the two of them enjoyed some chicken piccata and a few glasses of Cabernet. Peyton decided not to complain to Tom about the Alexa thing, or the strange feeling she had been experiencing. He had been stressed out with his new job, and she just didn't want to worry him unnecessarily. The rest of the week went by without incident. Peyton woke up on Monday morning feeling depressed and a bit nervous. Tom had to travel to San Francisco and would be gone until late Thursday night. She still felt unnerved when she was alone in the house, and the thought of four days without Tom made her physically ill. She decided to distract herself with some baking. Her friend Sam had sent her a caramel chocolate crunch cookie recipe she was dying to try. Peyton went to the kitchen and got out her mixer and all of the ingredients. She was just about to crack an egg into the mixing bowl when Alexa sounded. Here's I Killed Them All by Zedek on Amazon Music. Peyton dropped the egg and it smashed on the floor and splattered on her bare feet. Alexa, stop! Howled Peyton. When the music stopped, Peyton felt a chill come over her body. The temperature in the room inexplicably dropped to a point where she could see her breath. She stood frozen in place, staring at the egg innards dripping down her feet. She wanted to scream and run away, but she was paralyzed. She suddenly had the unnerving feeling that someone was standing directly behind her. She began to feel hot breath on the back of her neck, and goosebumps covered her flesh. The breath on her neck was an indecipherable whisper, and it smelled rancid. At that very moment, Alexa spoke again. Mutilate is spelled M-U-T-I-L-A-T-E. Tom's mind was racing while he sped down the road towards home. He had just landed in San Francisco when Peyton called him screaming. She was hysterical. She was spouting some gibberish about how Alexa wanted to kill her. He stewed between anger and worry while he rode towards their new home. He had to abruptly cancel his trip, which his new boss was not happy about. Also, he had to pay for the return flight out of his own pocket. Tom understood that Peyton was feeling lonely and away from her family, but this was just ridiculous. When Tom pulled into the driveway, Peyton was sitting on the front porch crying. Dark lines of wet mascara dripped down her cheeks, and she was visibly shaking. 
She had sat on the porch for six hours waiting for him to return because she refused to go back into the house. After quite a bit of coaxing and a promise to stay the night in a hotel, Tom convinced Peyton to at least go back inside for some hot tea and a change of clothes. They opened the front door, just as Elton John was proclaiming that, the bitch, yeah the bitch, yeah the bitch is back. Tom was slightly perplexed about the Elton John song playing when they went back into the house, but he did have quite a few of Elton's songs on his playlist, so he just brushed it off as coincidence. He thought this while he showered in the hotel bathroom. He also thought a lot about himself and a little about Peyton. He was a bit worried about Peyton, but he was even more worried about his job. Because he had to come home unexpectedly, he lost the Silverman account, and his boss was pissed. He promised his boss he would do whatever was necessary to get it back as soon as he figured out how to deal with the nonsense going on at home. Tom's big head wanted to tell Peyton that she needed to grow up and put this Alexa garbage behind her. However, his little head still wanted to fuck her, and he knew that telling her to man up may put a damper on their sex life. Instead, Tom called a local doctor and made an emergency appointment. After three days at the hotel and a prescription of Xanax, Peyton and Tom returned home. The doctor told Peyton that most likely the stress of moving to a new house in a new town had caused her to have a panic attack, which could cause weariness, confusion, and even hallucinations. The doctor told Peyton to take it easy for a few days and to take a pill if she started to feel nervous. Peyton wanted to tell him to go fuck himself, but instead, she just agreed and thanked him. She knew she wasn't crazy or having panic attacks. She knew there was something very wrong with that house. She also knew that Tom didn't believe her and that he was just being nice to get in her pants. She was starting to think that she made a mistake by moving with Tom to this godforsaken town. Peyton considered herself a strong woman, though, and she wasn't just going to sit around and watch her world fall apart. For the next few days, Peyton pretended she was fine and that all was back to normal. Tom offered to remove the Alexa stations, but Peyton refused and insisted she was okay. While Tom was at work, though, she was on the computer doing research about the town and about the history of their new home. Nothing strange happened with the Alexa, but when she was alone, she still felt a dark presence looming behind her. She knew that the house itself wasn't old because it was a newer development, one of those cookie cutters. In fact, there were still houses being built right down the street. Their house only had one previous owner, a family of three, who moved to Milwaukee. She googled the family, but didn't find anything out of the ordinary. The town itself was old. It was located on what was once part of the Oregon Trail. During the gold rush and the ensuing great expansion, 
Their town served as a popular stop for pioneers and gold seekers, heading west in some pursuit of manifest destiny. She did find some old town arrest records. Some crimes were worse than others, but nothing that stood out. She was getting frustrated and was about to give up when the Alexa stated, From Wikipedia, Edward Riddle, August 24, 1803 to October 30, 1860, also known as the Blacksmith Butcher, was an American serial killer who kidnapped, raped, murdered, and eventually consumed various body parts of numerous young women. Riddle's crimes, committed in the small town of Cauldron, Nebraska, gained national attention in 1860 after a tip from an escaped victim led authorities to his smithy where they discovered the remains of many female victims. Do you want to hear more? Peyton's jaw nearly hit the floor, and she felt like she had been punched in the gut. She got up to run, but instead took several deep breaths and sat back down. She gathered herself and continued her research. She figured that the more she knew, the better. In her mind, knowledge was power. She found an article from a local newspaper at the time that did a piece on the murders. When raiding Mr. Riddle's smithy, the local sheriff reported finding three female victims in various states of decomposition hanging from forged meat hooks in the back of his shop. In the corner of the same room was a large butcher block table, stained with blood, on top of which rested an assortment of blood-stained blacksmith tools, forged knives, and a dirty metal plate with the cooked, half-eaten tongues of the three hanging women. A further search of the grounds surrounding the shop revealed thirteen shallow graves containing the remains of other young women. A few of the bodies were able to be identified by missing persons reports, but most were never identified and were assumed to be drifters or prostitutes following the Oregon Trail in search of riches or business. The article stated that Mr. Riddle was known to frequent the local saloons and was often seen with many different women. But nothing was ever suspected due to the inflow and outflow of people in the small town. His killing spree came to an end when one of his intended victims, a Miss Clara Mann, was able to escape and alert authorities. As for Mr. Riddle, he fled town when he discovered that she had escaped. He was captured soon after in the foothills surrounding the town. While awaiting trial, he hung himself in his prison cell, and according to the article, his body was buried in an unmarked grave somewhere on the outskirts of Cauldron. Peyton shut the laptop and took several deep breaths. She was feeling very uneasy. She thought about calling Tom, but knew it would do no good. She also thought about taking a pill, but she wanted to keep a clear head. She opted instead 
or a cup of tea. Peyton stood up and headed to the kitchen. But as she flicked on the light, Alexa spoke again. The verb eviscerate is usually defined as to remove the entrails from or disembowel. <clears throat> Tom was slightly worried. He had tried to call Peyton like four times with no answer. Sure, he did ignore several of her calls earlier that day, but he was working. He was finally back on good terms with his boss, having salvaged the Silverman account. What could be so urgent? She could wait until he called her. Now, on his way home from work, he wondered if maybe he should have checked up on her. He decided to stop and grab a small bouquet of flowers and a bottle of wine. She may be mad, but flowers could help that, and if he played his cards right, the wine might even get him laid. Tom opened the front door and called for Peyton, but there was no answer. He assumed she was upstairs in the shower, so he headed for the kitchen to open the wine and put the flowers in water. The smell of cooking meat entered his nostrils. I hope that's not beef, he thought. I'm so tired of fucking beef. He put the flowers in a vase and uncorked the wine. Dinner smells amazing! Tom yelled as he reached for the soup pot lid. When he lifted the lid, he dropped his wine and purple splattered the walls. Tom stood petrified as he stared at Peyton's head floating in the boiling liquid. Her green eyes stared up at him blankly. Behind him, the pantry door swung open and Peyton's gutted, headless corpse fell to the tile floor with a wet, heavy thud. With tears streaming down his cheeks and hot vomit dripping from his chin, Tom fell to his knees and screamed, Alexa, call 911. This next story is based on a dream, according to the author, and it reads like a dream. A strange and terrifying, yet beautiful dream, sure to give you strange visions of your own as you drift off to sleep. This story is by J.C.S., and it's called The Farmhouse. The farmhouse looms on the lingering edges of dreams, a small dark thing that rises over the hill with a moon reddened by warm dust and with all the power of a king, even just despite its small size and dilapidation. 
crossed windows stare out like eyes over the barren fields, and even from all this distance, I catch them hover for just a moment on the darker outreaches of bush that trims the border behind a ramshackle, peeling white fence, a feeble barrier between us and the dark claws of pests and monsters and their lusting hunger. The farm, though not much befitting of its name, is a barren place at heart. Rust-colored grit sweeps gently over such empty fields, broken only intermittently by strange patches of overturned earth and dry grass covering old secrets and the haphazardly assembled wooden frames of barely blank signs or maybe crosses standing there staked into the earth withered bony skeletons that whistle when the wind is strong if I invent the stronger lines and trace the twisting vines of lush or even dying plants that are not there I can almost pretend the name is appropriate. I can almost pretend this is a normal place and not one ill-forgotten and rightfully so. It was nothing if not made unclear whether we were the seeds or calves in these fields. The barbs loosely strung on fences made little effort to keep us in, nor did the shackles of roots that tangled and caught at me each night we slumbered. The fear did that enough for us. Three men did that more than enough for us. If they could even be called that, with their hunched and looming forms, covered in black with twisted masks of something wet, and raw that could just simply not have been masks at all. Such a strange place was this, I would think, as barren dirt tickled bare feet, as far from a place of life and business and order as I know other farms are. And yet we all knew from the moment and from the second we woke up here that this place had a name, that we were in the fields, and that the dark shape of a small house that loomed over the hills was the farmhouse, and the three men, our farmers. We had not known a name more than those, though we had inklings of our own. In fact, I can almost touch the memories I have of waking up there the first time, staring up at a darkened red sky filled with dust in a night that didn't feel like night, lying on a bed of a disturbed patch of dirt that crumbled away on dry skin as I shifted in place. A touch of fear, of apprehension maybe, or curiosity, and the blood that didn't feel like blood thrumming 
beneath the pale shapes of fingers as I moved them in blank fascination from their place beneath the dust, feeling, despite all evidence to the contrary, like I had never had fingers before. The image is burned into my mind. That alone is clear in the way I can still trace the shapes of derelict markers behind my eyes. But those feelings and the true weight of sense and experience has left me. Rows of them stood, haphazardly put together and falling apart, but still erect in each place. Deceptively immovable, nothing to share with me, alone and sitting up in a field that felt endless despite its walls, standing in dirt just above my place and bearing down at me its pale shape stood stiff, feeling dry but alive and numbly confused as I traced the carved marks of letters on that cross that marked the head of my plot with dirt-crusted fingers, a name that I only faintly recognized at the time. No date, no explanation beyond that, just two faded words with a spider silk thin thread of association between us. I wish I could say I knew I was a ghost there, that I walked with a wonder and fear of not knowing with pale skin and a hole that sat inside my chest, making me feel empty as I wandered those barren fields of dust and dying patches of grass with a sense of purpose, of longing, keeping me rooted and tied to that place, to that marker, knowing deep in my soul that I wasn't meant to be there that I wasn't meant to stay. Truth be told, I think in those first moments, I thought I was, and though I had no true memory of how I came to lie there, of any death I might have lived, I could still feel the scratching and choke of dirt in my throat and sitting heavy in my chest. I could still just brush the rising panic as more and more of damp earth fluttered down in a hole I found myself unable to climb out of. The tears that made mud on my face as desperate fingers shook and clawed weakly at crumbling walls made pale against the dark earth before there's nothing left to find. The day before had been a kind one. I knew that. My mom out on business, and my father treating me and my sister to an outing on the peaks of a small mountain that hosted the foggy views of a city we had never thought to see like this. Smiles on our faces, legs aching and tired from the hike with twin cones going soggy in our hands, sticky fingers playing with public binoculars we could twist and pretend to see to the farthest reaches of land with. I can see our house, I'd say, vision dark with blocked visage. And my father would laugh and tell me we were looking too far east, 
so he could point it out for us. And I'd smile and turn the still useless things to where he'd indicated and tell him I could see now what he meant. I remember of that night falling asleep to the sounds of a television set echoing down the hall to the sight of what felt like hundreds of glow-in-the-dark stars pasted on the ceiling in a child's room. A small nightlight, my feeble charm against the unknown. The farm men's faces were blank and cold in still air when I opened my eyes, crusted with dry dirt and pretending I could feel myself enough to breathe and move enough to fear. I think they reminded me of earthworms intertwining in thick, fleshy tubes into the darkened shape of something like a gas mask or a plague doctor. Things I never thought to have conceived in person until much later, when hushed words left graveling throats of others I wandered into, and those rare sights when there were two or more of us, standing up slowly and clumsily in our plots, and trying not to use the rickety crosses for support as we found our feet. Three farm men that had always walked together, always larger than life, and emerging from their ramshackle castle on the hill that watched over us all, walked like gods in a world that none of us would ever want to understand, that maybe none of us could. If there was a purpose to us, I wouldn't have known it. If we were calves raised for the slaughter, like I had thought no one remembered or knew enough to notice if anyone was taken, a person you met and held onto could disappear for awakenings at a time and just as you grew convinced they were gone and fell into some approximation of mourning, you'd find them again wandering the fields just beside you like nothing had ever changed and they'd feel the same way about you having seen you just as much relief that felt buried and muted beneath heaviness that fell upon all things after you woke up numbness that followed even especially the fear of those infernal gazes of three men if you could even call them that, who watched and worked the fields that never changed around you. Change was a dead thing in fields like these, I had learned. Time just as equally so. The first boy I met when I woke up was a boy named William. I still remember those words and the dulled look in his eyes when he asked me what the last day or time I could remember was. I answered him in kind, not that it would matter all that much to either of us, whether he was hundreds of years old or only fifteen, like he looked that time 
meant as much to me as it meant to him. Because no one could know how long they'd spent in the dirt, or count in clear enough a mind that the numbers didn't trail off and slip through your fingers like dirty water or dust between the cracks and between small fingers. People are funny like that, I think. We want the world to make sense to us no matter how much it doesn't want to make sense. Want it to have a name, a purpose, or a meaning beyond whatever vague answer it gives. Want to know with provable certainty that everything was as we understood it to be and meant what we wanted it to mean. For many of the others, I like to think that want left a long time ago and let them exist as they were as shells of people and barren fields that had no purpose we could ever hope to understand that want never left me though and I don't need to know why it didn't fade though it sat idle for quite some time on a shelf I could almost reach. A kind of impossibility as far away from life as this place, as maybe all of us were and had been for ages. A farm with badly made fencing intertwined with metal barbs, and a house that looked out over us all, and all of it as empty of life as never a farm should be. Silent fields, full of people that had once been children, with no one left to remember the bodies of those that slept beneath the wooden markers that felt like home. And they reminded you of that every time dirt-crusted lashes fell closed or blinked open through the grit and looked up into the endlessness of dark, muted red sky that never changed, but always felt like too short a night. Footsteps, I had learned, had never stayed for long in the context of awakenings. I could still trace those tracks through memories, though, of wandering nights when it occurred to me to try and see in my mind when I could feel my time grow short and turned back in my own obedience to silent words of warnings to a world that felt safer than dark woods cut off by crude fences. But that last night, I did not reach that fence again. Stared out past that border with hands resting lightly over chipping paint and splinters and rusted thorns. Transfixed on a world that called to me in a voice of all the wants of a child who'd already spent far too long in a place like this. A child who was lost in a world they could not make sense of and so silently aching for warm beds and nightlights and glow-in-the-dark stars. And this night, for the only time I would learn I would need to, I jumped the fence. No sooner than my bare feet met the ground did a stone-crushing grip clutch my heart and tighten. Blood 
I had not felt before, trickling from the tips of once much paler fingers and making muddy streams where they fell, my feet just as bad. And in that time, if the forest or the act had not scared me so much, I might have been aware enough to notice the accompanying pain in each little indent and tear that peppered me like dust or flies on a rotten thing. I fell into a run before I even knew what it was from. Bloodied feet tearing on sticks and sharp stones and brambles long before I caught sight of the flashing teeth and dark shapes of the pests. Long twisted limbs, shark-like teeth that flashed and nipped at me from two wide mouths when I dared to look at them and see wild eyes that flashed in patches of dust, muted moonlight filtering through the leaves. I might have cried in those moments of panic, screamed if I had the voice for it still and not the scraps of sandpaper I had left in me. The vicious shuffling of big things growing bigger that pulled themselves through trees, limbs long and spindly with eyes and drool on every scrap of me, with hungry sounds and howls, drowning out the pounding of torn feet with wetter breaths and growls. They were faster than me, too. Much faster. In all honesty, the way out had felt as defined as not here as much as I was a scared kid. I was not a stupid one. I knew in that moment I was going to die there. Maybe more than I had in those moments in the pit where I'd started. They tripped me twice. Long clawed hands around my ankles, pulling me down and back along the dry leaves before I kicked at them and they let me go just long enough to enjoy doing it again. Legs sore enough to make me feel like every moment I was falling after getting back up, and the vice grip of panic in my chest ache enough to puke. Even now, I have no words to truly explain what it was to be in that forest. I was being hunted toyed with and at times thrown around like a ragdoll between children with long claws who didn't know how to share. Easy pickings, perhaps, no matter how fast I thought I was a child, which is why it surprised me more than anything when I finally made it out. I know I didn't care enough at the time. For now, I rest uneasily with the supposition that either something must have scared them off in the end, or they'd simply grew too bored with sitting ducks from the fields that something that ran fast enough for them to chase was exciting enough that they'd forgotten that there was any way for me to escape. Because believe me when I say that those things had never grown lazy or fat on the life of crops that sat idly in those fields, close enough to the edge to snatch away with long-clawed fingers over or through the metal thorns of a dying fence. So when I burst through the undergrowth of dark brush onto a night road that felt much more normal, smooth bitumen under sore slick feet and mind catching up, the images of the fields and the farmhouse and the place I had been didn't matter in the face of sheer relief I felt at the sight of headlights that shuddered and grew larger from far away before coming to a slow stop a few meters in front of me. And in that moment, all I could do was stare back at it with blood, snot, and tears, mixing mud on my face, as a tall man with a torch 
stepped out and called to me. Crouching down to meet my eyes as I smiled and said nothing when he asked me what I was doing there or where my parents were and if I could tell him my name. And when I finally managed to work up the voice to sob and strength enough to wipe my tears and smear more leaking blood on my face and ratty soft pajamas, he wrapped strong arms and a heavy jacket around me, and we drove off together, the peaking roof of a farmhouse beyond the trees, watching me go. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much to both of my authors, Ben Schleter and JCS. Thank you so much for letting me do this to your stories. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, Before I move on, um, I just wanted to say a quick I'm sorry to William Holshauser Kurtz. Um, Apparently, I, well, actually, it wasn't my fault. This was not my fault, but I do want to say thank you for being a patron. Apparently, I accidentally read his husband's name last week because <laughs> that's what was on my list. So, um, but I just wanted to give a quick shout out to William, who is my actual patron. Um, thank you, William. Okay, um, remember to follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. By the way, shout out to my two new Facebook mods, Dreeny Beanie and Brittany Bond. Thank you so much to both of you. You've been a huge help already. Um, The group's just gotten a little big. We had a little bit of a controversial moment last week. Don't worry about it. If you're not in it, don't worry. And so I just really needed some help, and I really appreciate you two helping me out. Um, So yeah, if you are in the Facebook group or thinking of joining the Facebook group, remember to answer those questions because they are stricter than me, which is good. They're stricter than me about you answering those questions. Again, just say podcast, podcast if you want. Or leave a little note if you want. Um, Now you can leave notes to them too. If you'd like to say hi. And welcome them to being new mods. Um, So yeah. Let's see what else. Um, I don't have many announcements this week. I really don't. Um, Did I bake this week? I didn't bake this week. Um, I made something really good this week. I was going to tell you all about. And I can't remember what it is right now. It's very late. It's about 2am. So um that's about it this week um thank you for listening thank you to my new listeners who are coming here from creepy i really hope you enjoyed the show um yeah uh support my ad sponsors because that always helps me out by the way i had someone ask me that recently that's why i mention it Uh, yes it does help me if you use my affiliate links it makes them want to keep sponsoring or rebuy new sponsorships of for my show so yes it does help so thank you so much um all right, let me read Patreon shoutouts. Uh, Mr. Book, let's start there. Um, I can't remember where I left off last week, and Mr. Book was another one that I apparently skipped at some point because he messaged me. Thank you so much for reminding me. By the way, don't feel shy to remind me if I do skip over you. These, the way I keep track is not great. <laughs> not super organized when it comes to this. Um, so... I'm going to start off where I think I left off last week, but I probably didn't. It, I might have already read your name. If I did, then you get two shout-outs on accident. It's not favoritism, I promise. 
All right, Candace Whiteman, Arkista Hansen, Marissa Guarneri, Guarneri, um, Katie Peterson, Amy Gill, Marina Burtnick, Brian Lane, Egg Boy, and Kelly Joe. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon channel. There's going to be a lot more stuff coming up in April, March. Again, if you didn't listen to last week's episode, had a lot of um, just things happen in March um, that were not great that held me back from being as productive as I would have liked. Um, I'm not going to go into it here. You can listen to last week's show if you want to hear about it. Um, All right. Thank you so much for listening. Um, Go get some sleep. Sweet dreams.